0: And we have seen in our study of in the book of Deuteronomy a picture of Israel in the wilderness. And these things are foreshadowing events of what God is going to do really to save the world. And that is a, a, a beautiful thing that we keep getting to look at in Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus as well, and especially now uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, and tonight we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy 14 through 18. Kind of a big section, and, and there's going to be really two big ideas that we're going to get to see as we move through that. So I want you to just kind of be keeping your eye open to that about one who God is and two who we are supposed to be. You'll notice in chapter 14, and uh, you know, being this many chapters, I can't read everything uh, in there. We're going to just capture some of the highlights to get the big idea of it. But I do want you to see. This first verse of Deuteronomy 14. You are the sons of the Lord your God. That really sets the tone of what these chapters are all about. Is that what we are starting with is a special designation. Now twice before in Deuteronomy through Moses, God has said that, the, that God who's treated them like a father would treat a son. But this now for the first time in Deuteronomy is just laying the title on them. You are sons of God. You are sons of the Lord your God. And because of that, that would be then a picture of the special relationship and special privileges that God would have with his people. In fact, notice that's the idea. Verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Because you are sons of God, you are now to be holy to the Lord your God. You are to be special. And I want you to notice that really the rest of this section from verse 1 all the way to verse 21. He now just starts describing all the different foods you're allowed to eat and not eat. You know, here it is. You're sons of God. And you're to be holy to the Lord. And probably the next thing you wouldn't expect is a pile of details about dietary laws and clean and unclean foods. But the idea is that belonging to God changes all aspects of your life. Even things that we would probably say are mundane. You know, okay, we have to be holy to the Lord. And we sometimes might think in terms of big ideas. But notice that even God brings it down to what we would consider. Small things If you're sons of God and holy to the Lord Then for Israel That's even going to change the things you eat And I need you to eat these things and not these things And it will change then even how they use their money You notice verses 22-29 to Is all about tithing We'll talk about that section in a minute But notice how that's the big flow here Because verse 2 You are a holy people to the Lord your God Look at the end of verse 21 Right there toward the middle For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This paragraph starts with you're a holy people to the Lord. It ends with you're a holy people to the Lord. Because you are sons of God, that changes everything about how you live. Every detail, every aspect, every life decision is completely altered by the fact that you're children of God. That you are in a special relationship with God. And there's an expectation then of being children of God that every aspect of life would be changed. Even things that we might think are small or insignificant or perhaps mundane, God then selects those. I want to read for you verses 22 through uh, 28 um, because what God says here, I think, has a fascinating description about what God is trying to do with his people, particularly with these changes in these laws. Look at verse 29, verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from your fields year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that He will choose to make His name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you for which the Lord would choose us to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your towns for the Lord has, for, for He has no portion or inheritance with you. Let's stop there. I want you to see what he, he's doing here. Now, sometimes you think about the tithe and here's God saying, now every year you're going to bring in this tithe. And here's God saying, I'm going to bless you so richly that what I want you to do is you're going to bring that 10%, that tithe with you to the place that I choose. And if you live far away, and I bless you so immensely, it's going to be really difficult for you to bring 10% of all your animals and all your crops and all the blessings that I give you so you can exchange it into money. And when you get there, then to where the Lord chooses, which is going to be Jerusalem eventually. Then you can change that money back into whatever your heart desires. And essentially here is God saying, I'm going to share in the blessings with you. The idea that he's giving of the tithe was not simply saying, well, God needs your money. Obviously, God does not need your money or your crops or your animals or any of those kinds of things. What God is pictured as doing is joining in in the fruit of their labors. Here is God blessing. He says, when you get in the land, I'm going to bless you so richly. I'm going to bless you so immensely that I want you to bring 10% of it to me. And then what we're going to do is we're going to sit down and share it together. In, Jerusalem, in the place that I choose and enjoy all that God has blessed you with and enjoy all that the animals enjoy the crop and enjoy all of those things. The reason why I think that is particularly important is we often have the tendency to live in the extremes when it comes to the blessings of God. You, you've probably observed that if you've grown up in the pews at all is that there's usually these two, two extremes. One is... Well, God blesses us and we're not allowed to enjoy any of the blessings that God has given us. In fact, I'm getting like this email right now from somebody. You're not allowed to spend any money on yourself, only on other people. And I'm like, it's not in the Bible. (laughs) Here's God saying this aspect. I'm going to bless you so richly and I want you to enjoy the blessings that I've given you. And sometimes we get this mentality that we're not allowed to enjoy the fruit of our labor, which then we come to Ecclesiastes and struggle when Solomon says, well, we need to eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit of your labor. (laughs) That's that's why I've given you those things. Um, Imagine if you as parents gave all these gifts to your children, and your children said, well, I can't use any of those things. That wouldn't be right of me to do that. You'd be like, what are you doing? I, I blessed you richly. I'm giving you these things. Use those things. But then the other extreme that we often tend to is, all right, well I'm just going to use everything on me. (laughs) And so, who cares about God? Who cares about spiritual things? I'm just going to enjoy all there is to life and just plunge myself into wealth and prosperity and all that. that we, We have such a tendency to be in the extremes where notice what God is saying is, everything belongs to me. And I want you to enjoy it, but understand as you enjoy it, Every bit of it came from God. Every bit of it, every crop, every flock, everything that they ever had was because God was blessing them. And so as you possess these things, recognize in your use of them, God gave it to you. Which would then keep us from using these things sinfully, keep us from using these things improperly. But at the same time, as we use these gifts and use these blessings, we're thanking God for every bit of it. Because we recognize all of it is because of God. That's what that tithe was set up for when they would do this annually with all of their feasts. It's not that they would go, okay, well, none of it's mine and I'm not supposed to use it. But there's God going, bring it to me and we're going to share in it together. And you're going to feast with God and recognize how God has blessed you richly in every aspect. I just hope that we would see him that there's such a a, a beauty there. And what an amazing God we serve who tells Israel, bring a portion of the blessings in so that I can join you and and, and rejoice over you and all and how I've blessed you richly that you would be able to enjoy the fruit of of the labor that I have given to you. It, It is a beautiful thing of here is God saying, I'm going to richly bless you. In fact, in chapter 15, that idea continues on where he starts picturing all the debts that are going to be forgiven. And you can notice like in verses 4 and 5, here is the Lord saying, there will be no poor among you, verse 4, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. I'm just going to bless you. You're going to go in the land and I'm going to richly, richly bless you. And when you have those things, I want you to recognize that you would not harden your heart toward your brother. Verse 7, now if any among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for the need, whatever it may be. So here is God saying, I'm going to bless you. You're going to enjoy all of the rich blessings when you come into the land. I'm going to give to you and you're going to enjoy it so richly. But then he goes around and says, but remember, somebody might end up being poor and you among the Israelites, among your brethren, you need to be able to do something about that. In fact, you'll notice in verse 11, you get the quotation where Jesus gets this verse 11 for there will never cease to be poor in the land. <laughs> Isn't that Interesting. That sounds like a conflict. Verse 4, he said, there will be no poor among you. And then in verse 11, he says, there will never cease to be the poor in the land. What? You read them and go, wait a minute. What happened here? And the idea seems to be that it may be on God's end. Because notice verse 4, verse four and verse 5 says, if you strictly obey everything that I've commanded you as were the requirements of the covenant with them. And we know Israel failed to do that. And we recognize that there would be things, that decisions that they would make that would cause them perhaps to put themselves in that state. That's why chapter 15 is a description that every seven years, all of your debts would be canceled and all the slaves would be set free. Wouldn't that be awesome if we have that every seven years, all your debts are canceled? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. That's how God set it up. Every seven years, all the debts are forgiven. Whatever you would owe to get somebody, that was now taken care of. And He gives a warning here and says, now you're going to have people through their decisions in whatever circumstances of life of Israel, and they're going to become poor, and you lend to them, and you help them, and you don't close your heart or close your hand to them, and I don't care if next year is when all the debts are released. I don't care if it's going to be six years, if it's going to be six months, You need to still lend and still give and have an open heart. It's really interesting what God was setting up in that. And the picture there that God is giving is one of that we are given these things by God so that we would also be able to help one another. That God, as we see in the New Testament, loves a cheerful giver like I have on the screen in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And that God blesses us and rewards us for our kindness and our our generosity. God has always desired for his people to be generous. And where would generosity come from except for the fact that you do what chapter 14 said? You understand that every bit of what you have comes from God. God gave it to you and God has given it to you with a purpose that you would rejoice in the Lord with what you have, and that you would recognize that those who would be needy among us, that we would be able to help them. And so that's what God's system was for Israel. So he comes in and says, you don't withhold your hand from your poor brother, that you would do good by them, and you would not look down upon them. In fact, we won't have time to read all this, but you remember the Apostle Paul, as he speaks to the Ephesian elders, tells them in Acts 20, Uh, And in verse 35, remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than receive. Proverbs 19 and verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to God. And he will repay him for his deed. There's always been the call of God of generosity. Recognizing that all of these things have come from him. Those of chapters 14 and 15 are centered around. You're a holy people. And that changes everything about how you look at life. It changes what you eat. It changes how you live. It changes how you use your money. It changes every aspect. It reaches into every part. Not just simply how you worship. But every aspect of life is completely altered by that. Now you'll notice that these next couple of chapters begin to describe what life should look like in the land in chapter 16 he describes these three festivals that Israel was supposed to keep when they come into the land those first eight verses describe the Passover and the Passover connects very closely to chapter 15 with the idea of being set free the Poor would have their debts forgiven and slaves would be set free in chapter 15. Chapter 16 then turns to the Passover, which was when Israel was set free from their captivity and set free from their slavery. And they were to remember how they were that. They were always to remember that and keep it before their eyes of what God had done for them, how they were slaves in Egypt and God had rescued them. They were to be reminded of that and even the unleavened bread, which represented the bread of their affliction is chapter 16, verse 3. So as you would take that Passover, you remember the severity of what life was like in Egypt. Don't forget what God has done for you. In in verses 9 through 12, he describes the Feast of Weeks, and you'll notice the same thing is given. Don't forget, verse 12, that you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget what God has done so much of the life of Israel was to be centered around the exodus to be centered around this redemption that God had accomplished by a mighty hand, bringing them out of Egypt and going to place them into the promised land. Their whole worship and all of life, all that they do when it came to weekly Sabbaths was to remember that. The annual feasts like this were also to remember them. And the Feast of Booths are also described... Uh, In chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. And in there, notice there's this picture of, again, God rejoicing with the people when they bring in this ingathering of food. In verse 17, it says, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your sons and your daughters, everybody that's a part of your household are all rejoicing. In this feast, verse 15, uh, in the middle there it says, Because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce, and all the works of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. This is an amazing picture of God saying, I'm going to bless you and you're going to participate in this worship and participate in these feasts. Always remembering what God had done for you in the past and rejoicing in the present, how God has richly blessed you. In verse 17, he says, everyone is going to give as they are able, according to the blessing that God had given to them. So even in this, here's doing as much as you are able to do. Here's what what God has blessed you with. That's then what you're going to use to rejoice in the Lord and enjoy those blessings that God has given Now, in the life of of Israel, this is where the chapter break really ought to belong, is in the middle of chapter 16, he now says, so when you come into the land, I want there to be justice and righteousness in the land. There should not be judges that you appoint who accept bribes and are shady in any way or are unjust in any way. I want your judges and I want your officials and officers who are set up in the towns to make sure that they do not show partiality, that they are very straightforward and that they do not pervert justice. That is what God wants from them. Justice, justice, and righteousness again and again is put forward. This should be what the people of God are marked by. He then goes on and talks about idolatry. We have seen that all throughout Deuteronomy. He will keep coming back to that again and again and again. Don't you dare worship false gods. In fact, here he lays out the death penalty for idolatry. Uh, if you turn and go toward other gods and you worship them, then on the evidence of two or three witnesses, they were supposed to be stoned and thus purging the evil out of their midst, which we've used that phrase before in Deuteronomy. And we note that's also found in First Corinthians chapter 5. So you get these pictures of righteous judgment in the land. Do not fall into idolatry. And then in the middle of chapter 17, he says... So here's what's going to happen. You're going to have these priests and they're going to have these judges and they're going to make these legal decisions and moral rulings on behalf of God to the people and you are supposed to listen to their rulings and follow exactly what they say. And so when the priest would give whatever case would arise and make a decision in regards to some kind of legal matter or some kind of action that was taken, then they are supposed to follow the prescription that that is given in that. In fact, so strong is this, that this was not a suggestion in chapter 17, verse 12, here Moses says, and if you don't do what the priests and the judges say, you're put to death for not listening. You follow what they decree in regards to any of these decisions in any of these cases. Which I find fascinating because the New Testament also echoes that idea where you have not only obeying your spiritual leaders, but remember the Apostle Paul says you obey worldly leaders and you follow the government that God is Put these, leaders, these these governments and the governing authorities into place. You do what the law says. So you have this emphasis even back here in Deuteronomy. You follow your leaders. You listen to how these court cases are adjudicated. You do what they say and you do not go against it. And so that's what was supposed to happen when they come into the land. Just judges... Just rulers, just leaders, righteous leaders who will lead the people, who will then tell them, here's what the law says. Here's what God desires. Here's how to handle these scenarios. And the people will follow it, which then leads to this interesting build up in these descriptions. What what happens here? Now, this probably, in my mind, is a fairly surprising turn of events. Verse 14 of chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord your God said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him as and he shall read from it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You'll notice now that God gives directions for appointing a king. He says, now what's going to happen is you're going to go to the land you're going to say, we want a king just like all the nations. And God says, that's fine. But I'm going to choose your king. I get to pick who gets to rule over you. Interesting declaration about that. I select. And here's the kind of person he's going to be. He has to be a true Israelite. Can't be a foreigner. Can't be an outsider. Has to be truly an Israelite. He's not allowed to go and acquire many horses. He's not allowed to acquire many wives. And notice he's not supposed to acquire even excessive riches either. And then here's this really important description about the king. Copy the law for himself read it for himself, learn from it himself, so that he will always do what the will of God is. He must know the law inside and out, and he will know it so well that he will do exactly what God says so that his heart is not raised up against his brethren, but instead he will follow all that the Lord tells him to do. Right after giving that description, notice chapter 18 now describes what priests look like. And he says, all right, here's what the priests will do. They don't have any part in the land because God's going to be their inheritance. Wanting the priests to be able to focus on God. And so they would be supported by the people in that. And then you will notice in verse 15 what God now says after talking about priests and talking about kings. In verse 15 he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself were required of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how will may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So now we come to this kind of grand setting. And here is Moses saying, here's what's also going to happen when you come into the land is God is going to raise up another prophet and he's going to be like me and he's going to speak all of the Lord's commands to you just as you asked for God to do because when we were at Horeb, remember the people said, don't let God speak to us again. We can't handle that. And Moses said, "And God said that was good. And so here I am, but God is going to raise up another, which means that like Moses, there was going to be another one who would arise who would be, if we're going to compare him to Moses and be just like him, then there is the expectation that this new prophet who arises is going to be able to be a mediator like Moses, who's going to have access into the presence of the Lord like Moses, to be able to directly converse with the Lord like Moses is able to do and have the spirit of prophecy to speak the very words of God. In essence, he's going to be a leader, he's going to be an intercessor, he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be just like Moses in every way. Now, you capture all that. What I want to do in the final minutes then is just kind of take a step back and just soak in what all of those chapters were doing. First picture for us, those first couple of chapters, God's people are supposed to be holy. In being called children of God, which we have seen the beauty of that in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, here is God saying your sons you have been called into sonship you are on uh, this beautiful family plane with jesus himself in the house of god you are sons of god and therefore by being sons of god there is a responsibility to holiness and the idea of holiness should resonate in our minds this every aspect of life is different Everything that we do, every decision we make, everything that we would consider, even that we would think, well, that's mundane and God doesn't care about that. Would you believe that God would care what food they ate? I wouldn't have. I'd be like, you know, hey, you know, whatever you find that works, no big deal. And here even God gave great specificity to here's all the details of even the food that you eat. And the idea behind that is, is that God dictates every aspect of life. God doesn't just dictate aspects of life for Sunday alone. But everything that we do is comes under God's governance and comes under God's guidance. And so here is the picture of God's people. You're going to come into the land and I want you to be a very different people. I want you to be a people that look like God's people. That are different in every way. That don't look like the world. But are set apart and special in that way. And then you'll notice... Not only is this a description of what God's people look like, but you really get a powerful picture that God's appointed leader needs to be very different as well. You might have captured this as we were flowing through these chapters, but did you get a sense of all of the hope that Israel would have? Is that there's going to be this canceling of debts and the people being set free. Here is this foreshadowing There's going to be one who's going to be able to do that. In fact, if you remember Jesus as he is in the synagogue and he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 and verse 17, and he goes to the section where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This one of my favorite passages. He just rolls up the scroll, hands it back, sits down, they all stare at him, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. <laughs> there you go. This is it. Notice this is what Deuteronomy is projecting. There's going to be one who's going to come, who's going to bring the true setting free from sin, this true canceling of debts, the one that's truly going to deal with the problems that we have. There is one who's going to arise who will be the appointed leader who will accomplish that. And the Passover was even projecting that imagery as well. It is no surprise to us that we come into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And here is Paul saying, here is Jesus our Passover here is our Passover lamb has been sacrificed debts have been forgiven we have been set free this is what Israel was getting a a foreshadowed nice picture of of what is going to come who's going to do this permanently and debts are not going to be forgiven every seven years this is going to be a permanent forgiveness a permanent release That's what we are longing for. And that's why Jesus would quote Isaiah and say, here I am. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set them free. This is the hope that's in them. Then Deuteronomy goes on to talk about righteousness and justice. And this is what Isaiah speaks of over and over again, that when Messiah comes, he is going to be one who will rule in righteousness and rule in justice. If you remember, if you can think back to the major and the minor prophets, one of the great condemnations that happens over and over again is neither the priests nor the leaders or their shepherds, none of them were just. They did not act righteously. They did accept bribes. They did oppress the poor. They did wreck the downtrodden over and over again. Ezekiel gives some of the strongest pictures of that. Of Here are the weak and you're shoving them aside and and not allowing those sheep to enjoy justice and righteousness. And there was this longing for one who would come and do that. We even sense that in our culture, in our society, can't we just have a leader who will rule in righteousness and justice and be everything that God has called them to be would not be swayed by what they see? Well, that's what Isaiah was picturing. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Priests, Prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom and and to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do it. And then Matthew chapter 12, as I have on there, here is Jesus. Using the same picture of justice and justice. He's come for justice. He's going to bring the justice that we are longing for. This is what we cry out for. We need justice and righteousness from God. Jesus is the one who rules with justice and righteousness. He is our perfect leader. We notice then God says there's going to be a king. You're going to ask for a king and that's fine. I'll give you a king, but I will choose who the king is going to be. And that king then must know God's law perfectly and act as a humble king, not acquiring for himself of his personal desires of wives and all those things, but rather ruling on behalf of the people. We see this beautiful picture in Jesus as the prophets uh, predict and and prophesy of Jesus being the beautiful and perfect king for us. He is the priest that we need. We're, We're just about to cross into that section in Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, this is Jesus fulfilling the priestly role of of what we need as well. And then finally, as we end in Moses saying, and of all these things, there will be a prophet like me who's going to arise. What you are seeing from Deuteronomy 14 to Deuteronomy 18 is a picture of the ideal, the picture of what it is supposed to be that we need one who is going to accomplish all this. Because Israel is going to go into the land and they're going to try to set all this up. And they aren't going to have the perfect kings. And they're not going to have all good prophets. They're going to have false prophets and false leaders. They're not going to have the priests that they need. They're going to be condemned for not teaching the people in the way that they ought to go. And all of the failures that are going to happen in the life of Israel is all set up to help us realize we need God himself to do this. There is no human ruler who can do this. No one is going to come along and be the perfect ruler and rule in righteousness and justice. This is the whole essence of what God wants us to see so that we would never put our hope in the rulers and humans of this world. They're going to fail. Think about all the failures of all of the people that were the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Even those who were given even fairly good descriptions, you will often get this little parenthetical, but they didn't tear down the high places or they didn't do exactly everything that God had said to do they were on the whole good but not what we need we need someone who will rule in righteousness we need someone who will speak to us the very words of God we need someone who will intercede for us we need a perfect king we need a perfect prophet and we need a perfect priest and Deuteronomy is setting up that need so the people would come to the land and try to have that and go we need somebody else And Jesus is a beautiful picture of that. What I want you to see then as we wrap it up this evening. Is that the more we look at these pictures of what God is putting forward. The more we should see the beauty of who Jesus is. That we should get a a wider view of who he is and what he's come to do. That the arrival of Jesus not just merely well he came and he forgave sins. It's so much masterful. So much more to him than that. So much greater diversity to the role that he plays for us. He fits the role of everything that we need. You need an intercessor? You've got that. You need a leader? You have that. You need a king? You have that. You need someone who reflects the very picture of God? You have that. Whatever you need in relation to God, he is the only one who fits what we need. And it's so interesting to think about in the life of Israel, all of the different people that would have filled all of the priest roles and all the different people who tried to fill all the king roles and all the people who came along filling the prophet roles. And all of that showed there could be only one who could really do it. Only one who could really be the prophet that we need. In fact, to amplify as we wrap it up, that final paragraph, Moses says that a prophet like me will arise with one distinction. It is interesting that when we have studied Moses, we have seen a flawless leader until one particular moment that he is condemned. Even Moses can't do the task, and even Moses failed in accomplishing what we need to have a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, and a perfect king. As we go forward this week, just think about then what Jesus has accomplished because what He has done is greater than what anybody could ever do. How we often just put our hope in so many other people and other things. And what you need in this life is Jesus. What you need is is His rules, His righteousness, His justice, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. He is the place where you will find all that you possibly could need. The moment we look anywhere else, all that we find are human failings. The place to turn is Jesus. Will you come to Him tonight? Turn away from your sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And follow Him faithfully. Won't you come and do that while we stand in love?